All right. Well, hey, this morning uh, we're going to be continuing our study in Paul's letter to Titus. And so as you turn there, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were really angry? Okay. Like really angry. I'm not, I'm not talking about just being irritated or, or bothered, right? I'm talking about like Liam Neeson punch you in the throat anger. All right. When was the last time you were really, really angry? And what was the reason for your, for your anger? What, what motivated it? Like what happened in your life, in your family, at work, in culture that stirred that like rage, that kind of volcano inside of you that was ready to erupt? Or who was the catalyst? For your anger, like who made you angry? If they're sitting next to you, don't point to them, okay? But who made you angry? And how, if you did, how did you express your anger? I mean, did you just kind of stuff it, push it down? Did you, did you unleash it? Did you kind of just go a little crazy, a little Old Testament on somebody? And if you did express your anger, what did you hope to accomplish? Now, like I know we live in a world that is really angry about everything, but I don't think the solution is simply to label all anger as a negative emotion and kind of do whatever it takes to never be angry again. That's completely unrealistic. Like to never be angry again, like through meditation or medication or, you know, moving to Montana, I'm somehow not going to be angry again. That is unrealistic, not to mention that it's completely unbiblical. Like the Bible teaches us that I can be angry and righteous at the very same time. It tells us in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Like in this very short statement, there are four imperatives in the original Greek, four commands that Paul is giving to the church. In a very short statement, just working backwards, he says... Give no opportunity to the devil. And so the context is, listen, in your anger, right? In your anger, don't give any opportunity to the enemy. Don't let Satan use your anger to promote his agenda. Next, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let your anger, that emotion, that rage so consume you, that it's there when you wake up in the morning. Like put it to bed before you put yourself to bed. And then Paul says, and do not sin. Like just because you're angry, just because someone has hurt you or wronged you, does not give you a free pass to sin. They did this, though I get to do this. No, it doesn't work that way. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You don't get to sin just because somebody hurt you or because someone else sinned. But there's still one more command in this passage. 
And it's the very first statement that Paul gives. This is an imperative, a command. Be angry. Like Paul commands us in this passage to be angry. How can you be angry and not sin? Well, the answer is by being angry at sin. Like righteous anger in the Scripture is being angry at the same things that make God angry. How can God look at the sin of the world? It's rejection of Him. Just the, the using of people. How can, he use, how can God look at human trafficking, at abortion, at murder, at rape, and not be angry? And so to have righteous anger is simply to be angry at what makes God angry. My question is, how much of your anger has ever been truly righteous? Like, when was the last time you were really angry? Was it because somehow the name of God was defamed? Was that what stirred that anger inside of you? Was it because Jesus was in some way belittled? Is that what caused that little volcano inside of your heart to begin to erupt? Was it because the, the gospel was distorted, distorted in some way? Does that stir anything in you? Like when Pastor Michael got up here last week and talked about this national survey that said that the vast majority of people who were in evangelical churches like this, who profess to be born again like many of you, do not have a biblical or Christian worldview. Does that bother you? Does that irritate you? Does that in a little bit begin to make you angry that that's the case? Like Pro Ministries did a survey recently where they found that 70% of those who claim to be born again do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And so 70% of those, once again, who claim to be born again don't actually believe the words of Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Me. Does that irritate you? Like, do you have a little stirring of anger in your heart when you think these people are defaming the name of Christ, distorting the Gospel? See, the truth is that we're often angry for all the wrong reasons. At all the wrong things. With all the wrong people. And we express it in all the wrong ways and it accomplishes nothing positive. And so how can you be angry and not sin? Like, what does that even look like? Well, it looks like Paul in Titus chapter 1. Paul in Titus chapter 1. Remember last week we read, Paul said in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. Like, we are traveling through. It was me, you, and Timothy. We went to Crete. We kind of strengthened the church there. Like, we, we spent some time teaching and setting things in order. But then I left with Timothy. I went to Ephesus. I left him there. But I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained in order. That word that uh, 
in the original language is the same word that we get orthopedics from. Do we put what remained in order means to straighten things out. To straighten people out. To straighten your leaders out. To have well-aligned leaders. To put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. See, the church cannot be what it's meant to be if it's out of order. If it's out of spiritual alignment. The church cannot grow up straight without well-aligned leaders. Remember, this is kind of what it looks like, right? This little idea here is that the the top should match the bottom, right? The belief should match the behavior. The creed should match the conduct. The sound doctrine should be followed by sound living. That's the way it's supposed to be. There needs to be an alignment. They should match up. These are the kind of leaders, the kind of parents, the kind of elders that every church needs. And so, after giving his instruction to these future elders, Paul says in verse 9, he, talking about the elders, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Like he needs to hold to it. He needs to have sound living matching his sound doctrine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, like here's the job description for well-aligned leaders, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Like the word give instruction here is the same word used like a form of it to talk about the Holy Spirit being the one who comes alongside us, the paraclete. Like the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us and instructs us. He comes alongside us. A modern equivalent to this word for the elder would be to coach. Like a good coach comes alongside their players. They know where they're weak and they know where they're strong. They know what they have to offer and they know where they're a little bit cocky and they need a little bit more instruction. They know what the goal is at every game, every competition, and they know what it will take to help them accomplish that. And that's the role of the elder the elder to instruct in sound doctrine. But it's also their role to rebuke those who contradict it, which doesn't sound near as fun, Right? Like, I don't mind teaching. Like, I love to teach. I love to study. I love to get caught up on a rabbit trail looking into some verse or some idea, some concept, some, some truth, some doctrine, some history. But my job is also to confront, to rebuke those who contradict it. John Calvin wrote this. He said, a pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves. See guys, standing on the truth is not popular. Defending the truth is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for those who are people-pleasers and whose main goal is acceptance. An essential quality of any leader, whether he's an elder in the church or mom or dad, whether he's a small group leader or a Sunday school leader, a essential quality of any leader is courage. 
Courage to stand. Courage. And why is that? Well, he tells us in verse 10, for, like this is it. This is, this is why we need well-aligned leaders. For there are many. Note, not few. Not a handful. Not some. There are many who are, and this is on the island of Crete, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This is the, this is the context of Titus's ministry. Like when an elder or pastor goes to a church, they're hoping that as they arrive there, there will be some people who really crave the truth. They really want to grow. They hope that they can see some people that they think, I can see a long-term relationship, even a friendship with these people. Paul leaves Timothy in Titus with a bunch of deceivers, empty talkers, and people who are insubordinate. Like that, that word, insubordinate, could be translated rebellious or unaccountable. Literally, it means without order. Without order. Remember, I, I left you there on Crete to establish order. To put in order what remains. What remains? Well, some people who are out of order. Like it carries the idea of an unwillingness to subject yourself to anyone. Like these would-be leaders of the church refuse to answer to anyone, to yield to anyone, to be held accountable by anyone, and yet no one ever outgrows the need for accountability. I mean, just contrast these people who are insubordinate with the title Paul gives to himself as a slave. As somebody who's not above everyone, but under everyone, because he is a slave of God. Insubordinate tells me of their attitude and empty talkers tells me what they do day to day, day in and day out. It tells me about their activity. Like it matches. I mean, you want matching, right? You want sound doctrine and sound living. And if you can't have that, you want insubordination and empty talkers. Like empty. These guys are empty talkers. That means that their message is empty. It's vain. It's worthless. It has no substance. It's futile. It's, it's like they're cotton candy preachers. There's a lot of fluff, but no stuff. A lot of fluff, but no substance. And as a result, Paul calls these people deceivers. A word that literally means to trick the mind. These are the people who come in with a message that's kind of close to the truth, and in doing so, they lure people away. In fact, he says who they are. They're of the circumcision party. Which, come on. Sounds like the worst party ever, right? <laughs> if I'm invited to the circumcision party, I'm not showing up. I'm even I'm gonna even like shred the invitation. I don't want to be there. But these people are of the circumcision party, and Paul actually has a very long and painful history with them. It goes back twenty years. These are the heretics that have followed Paul from city to city who are trying to add something to the purity and the freedom of the Gospel. They're Jews who have professed Christ as the Messiah and they say, listen, Gentiles, man, if you really want to be spiritual, if you want to be on the A-team, 
All you have to do is convert to Judaism. Guys, get circumcised. And then embrace Christ as Messiah. And then live out these ceremonies. Live out these dietary laws. Go to the, the, the temple in Jerusalem a couple times a year. Travel there. Offer your sacrifices. That's all you have to do to be everything God has really called you to be. I mean, after all, the Hebrew Scriptures... Like, are we just supposed to throw them out? Do they mean nothing? And so it seems like it makes a lot of sense. And that's why there are many. And that's why it's messing with the church on Crete. Like they were content to live in the shadows of the truth. But Christ is the substance. He is the one that all of that pointed to. And they were deceiving many. And so Paul writes, these guys must be silenced. Literally, the word silence means to slap a muzzle on them. That's what it means, which is not very nice. It's certainly not very politically correct. It's kind of harsh, but Paul says, listen, shut these guys up. Like Paul is speaking here kind of like as a mama bear with her cubs being messed with. Right? You don't want to mess with a mama bear's cubs. A couple years back, Amy and I went to uh, Yellowstone and we were so excited in the hope of seeing a bear. How could, how cool would that be? Would be very cool if we were in a car. <laughs> but if you're just walking down the trail, not so cool, guys. Especially if you see a bunch of little cute, adorable bear cubs come up. You know at that point, run. It's not a time to pet unless you want to lose an arm because mama's coming right behind them. And Paul here is like the mama bear. Like something is happening that is upsetting the church. That's messing with people's faith. That's pulling people away from the purity of the gospel of free grace. And he will not have it. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Literally, literally, they're upsetting or overturning whole households. Right? Remember in the first century, the churches often met in households. And the churches on the island of Crete were meeting in town to town, house to house. And so what he's saying here is, shut these false teachers up. Because what they're doing is that they're overturning entire churches. Guys, ideas have consequences. And these bad ideas, these heretical teachings, have infected these people's beliefs, their choices, their relationships. It's disrupting families and it's disrupting churches. Shut these guys up quickly confront these false teachers as quickly as you can because they're tearing churches apart. Understand this. Failing to confront false teaching. Failing to shut up false teaching is not a virtue. It's not an act of love. It doesn't make you a better Christian or a better person. It's actually unloving because you're not standing for what's best for people, which is the truth. 
Like if you if your high value is to be nice, understand Mr. Rogers is not the epitome of a Christian. Jesus is. And he could welcome children to himself, and at the same time he could make a strand, a a whip, and cleanse the temple. And that's what Paul is doing here. In fact, these possibly very nice heretics that he's challenging were crafting a message for the purpose of shameful gain. Like what Paul is saying there is what we would say in our own idiom of like drug money, right? If somebody got rich on drug money, you're like, okay, everything that they have, everything that they own, everything that they've done is all tainted by the fact that they did it in an illicit way. And that's what Paul is saying here. These guys get up and teach because they want stuff. They want the applause of man. They want affirmation and they want money. And it's shameful. Now, I'm not going to name names. But certainly, church, some names come to mind just in our general culture and Christianity, Christendom, televangelists and popular books and popular speakers. I'm not going to name names, but names should be going through your head. Like the best way to spot error is to really be familiar with the truth. So how familiar, familiar are you with the truth? Like what are you doing right now to deepen your understanding of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints? At the beginning of this year, we had a bunch of books that we were selling, Unfolding Grace because we did a 40-week series through that, through the Old Testament and New Testament. But we also sold three theology texts and encourage you, buy one and read it this year. Like, grow deep in the truth. I mean, for 40 weeks, we met in this room on Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m. with a small group of people who wanted to deepen their understanding of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And as a result, they can spot error because they're familiar with the truth. Paul goes on, verse 12, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You just got to wonder, okay, if this guy's a Cretan and all Cretans are liars, is he lying? Because if he's lying, then what he's saying is not true. And if what he's saying is true, then all Cretans can't be liars. It's very confusing. And so Paul clears it up by just saying, hey, this testimony is true. <laughs> yeah, what this guy said, he really nailed it here. Once again, he's not talking about everybody on Crete. He's talking about these heretics, these false teachers who are spreading a perversion of the gospel that adds works righteousness to what Christ accomplished on the cross. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they may be sound in the, in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Guys, it's so easy to trip over the seeming harshness of what Paul says. His, his very direct way of calling out error 
and miss something that is truly, like for me, truly unexpected in this passage. I mean, just consider for a moment how unbelievably gracious Paul is being. These heretics, these empty talkers, these insubordinate men, these people who are upsetting whole families have dogged Paul for 20 years. For 20 years following him from town to town, city to city, undermining his message. And they were the reason for much of his own personal suffering. And yet Paul doesn't want Titus simply to win the debate. Like Paul hopes that he may have a chance to win them. Like Paul, like Paul may be saying to Titus, listen, I've talked to them. They didn't listen to me. Timothy talked to them. They didn't listen to him. They've been confronted by Apollos and by Peter and by James and by the rest of the apostles. They're still not getting it. But maybe the 30th person will be the one who breaks through and so confront them in the hope that they may be sound in faith. You see, according to Paul, people who are deceivers are themselves deceived. That's why he tells Timothy something similar in 2 Timothy 2. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do His will. Guys, in the midst of a conflict, hope is usually the first casualty. In the midst of a conflict, are you holding on to hope like, are you praying for your enemies? Are you praying for the heretics out there? Are you praying that God will wake them up, get their attention, and that they would turn to the truth? Because there is a deceiver of deceivers. Not just the chief deceiver, but behind every deceiver is someone who has deceived them. We share a true enemy. Satan is the father of lies. He is the true deceiver. And so in all your fighting, are you fighting the right enemy? In conflict in your own home, are you fighting with, you, with your kids? Or are you fighting for your kids? In conflicts at work, are you fighting with your co-workers or for your co-workers? With your neighbors or for your neighbors? Are you going to battle in prayer and praying that God would open their eyes and approaching them, speaking the truth in love in the hope that God would grant them repentance leading to life? Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, Paul's probably referring here to the fact that these people from the circumcision party show up with like their 
kosher diet book that they're selling for $9.99. Just buy this book. This is all you need. Just follow these dietary laws. And of course, whatever you do, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, which by the way, on the island of Crete is all of it. Like all of the meat was first offered to an idol. He wasn't hungry, so they sold it in a market. That's just how it worked. And so Paul is saying, these people think that, oh my goodness, if I eat that, I'm going to become impure. That's not how it works. And in doing so, he's just using his own words to say the same thing that Jesus taught in Mark 7. Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. And so it's like Paul was saying, hey guys, false teachers, heretics, in the future, when you say, thus, thus, thus saith the Lord, make sure that the Lord actually thus saith that. Okay? Make sure those are actually His words because you're going against exactly what Jesus explicitly taught about food and about purity. Like instead of keeping people pure, your message is actually defiling them and corrupting them. And then He concludes, they profess to know God, these false teachers, but they deny Him by their works. And then He ends with this, they are detestable disobedient and unfit for any good work. Wow, Paul. Like, tell us what you really think about these people. In fact, if, if you're among these people on the island of Crete and Titus reads this, their response, I'm sure, would be something like, well, that's not very nice. That makes me feel bad. To which Paul would probably respond, good. It should make you feel bad. You're bad. What you're doing is wrong. You're leading people astray. Repent. Like we live in a world where we have elevated our emotions to be the measure of all truth. And as a result, we live in rampant delusion. And Paul says, the result of this is that they are detestable disobedient and unfit for any good work. Like he unloads on them. You got to wonder like, what do you think about Paul's tone? Seems so hard. He just told Timothy to be nice. And now he's being really hard. He's reading, he's being really passionate. But what are you passionate about? Like what angers you? Like when was the last time you were angry at false teaching, at heresy? Have you ever been angry at heresy? You see, you got to understand, guys, to add anything to the gospel of Jesus is to subtract Jesus from the gospel. To add anything to the gospel of free grace subtracts grace from the gospel. When you hear that, does something stir in your heart? Is that volcano about to erupt? To add anything to the work of Christ 
the gospel of grace is to entrust your eternal destiny to the work of human hands. No longer trusting in Christ. No longer trusting in the cross. Instead, trusting in a Jesus plus Gospel. A a grace plus Gospel. A cross plus Gospel. And there are only two possible results from such a heresy. Either spiritual pride or spiritual despair. Like gospel plus theology will inevitably create a spiritual A-team. Those who have it all together, they're nailing it. And a very unspiritual B-team. It'll create legalists and it'll create those who will never measure up. Like legalists. Those who believe that it's Jesus Plus, I'm a really good person. Jesus plus, look at me, I'm at church. Jesus plus, listen, I don't drink and you shouldn't either. Jesus plus whatever. Like those legalists who think that they measure up to God, that by what they do, God loves them a little bit more. Hey, you want God to love you? Well, he does love, He loves everybody, but do you want Him to love you just a little bit more? God, God's willing to accept anybody, but do you really want Him to accept you just a little bit more? Like, do you want to be on the A-team? See, legalists maintain their position by tearing down others. Like, I compare my own merit to your demerit. My knowledge to your lack of knowledge. My abilities to your lack of abilities. They maintain their position by minimizing their own sin. And by redefining the standards to match their own strengths. Like legalists find the thing that they're really good at and that thing becomes the thing. Like everybody needs to be just like this that I'm really, really good at. And the result is that it leads to spiritual intimidation and often spiritual despair among anyone who will be honest about their own imperfection. Guys, faults teaching is dangerous false teachers are dangerous paul calls them defiant divisive detestable and defiled and by refusing to confront false teaching it can result in upsetting whole families like i remember when i was a youth pastor at hill country austin I'd been there for about 10 years at this point. I'd been in youth ministry for about 18 years, spending 18 years teaching teenagers, investing in moms and dads of teenagers. And this guest speaker shows up at my church. And at that point, there's probably 5,000 folks in the church every Sunday. He gets up in front of these 5,000 people in a couple different services and tells them by his own experience, which was doing prison ministry and half, halfway house kind of ministry, that if, if they haven't taught their kids the truth by the time they are in middle school, give up. You can't teach a teenager. You just can't teach a teenager. It's done. Move on. So parents, don't try to instruct your teenagers because it's not going to work. If you haven't done it by now, it's too late. They're not going to listen to you. Hopefully they'll come back. Pray for them. You've done your best. You know, wash your hands of it. And I thought, what? 
Like, who gave this guy a microphone? I showed up in Sunday school the next hour. I had my message to teach, and I just said, guys, I'm sorry, I just have to say this. No, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but everything that guy said on Sunday in our church was wrong. It was wrong. I mean, if it wasn't wrong, what have I done the last 18 years? 18 years of teaching teenagers who can't be taught. What a waste. Training moms and dads to invest in their kids. What a waste. And I remember I got in trouble. I got called out by our executive pastor. And he really got on to me for being disrespectful and saying this about somebody who was in their pulpit on Sunday morning. And I just said, okay, help me understand. How am I the one in trouble? The person in trouble should be the one who gave that guy the microphone to spew error in, in 5,000, the lives of 5,000 people. Come on. Guys, do you have an anger problem? And by anger problem, I mean you don't get angry. Or you get angry at all the wrong things. Like, do you have an anger problem. Are you sufficiently angry? Are you angry at the right things? Are you angry at the right person? Or are you so angry about so many things that when you get to spiritual things, things that are eternal and actually have substance, you're kind of done with anger. You need to save up your anger and let it go on the things that it needs to be let go on. Like, what are you doing with your anger? Because there's some things worth fighting for. Like, who are you shepherding? I mean, just think about your own kids. Your kids are worth fighting for. Your grandkids are worth fighting for. The Gospel is worth fighting for. Truth. The Incarnation. The Trinity. Like, these are things worth standing and fighting and dying for. Like, who are you following? To whom are you accountable? You see, Paul warns this church by giving the negative example of these people that, hey guys, don't be self-willed. Don't be <laughs> independent. Don't be unaccountable. Like, don't assume you know everything. Be willing to sit under authority. Be willing to be taught about things that you think you already know about and you can grow from that. In fact, he says what you really need is you need older men and older women in your life who are mature in the faith who can teach you the truth. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. God, I do pray that... Uh, that we would, as believers in this room, those who know Jesus, that we would be angry and yet not sin. That we would be angry at the things that anger You. And yet we will not let the sun go down on our anger. We won't let it consume us. Lord, that we would be angry and not sin and not let the sun go down on our anger and also not give Satan a foothold in our life by being foolish. Lord, help us to lovingly and passionately like Paul stand for what is right. For our children, for our grandchildren, 
for our church, for this lost world that needs to hear about a gospel of grace apart from works. We pray through Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. I, th- I think it's interesting that Paul says um, that an elder can't be quick-tempered. He can't be pugnacious. shouldn't be a brawler. And then he starts a fight. <laughs> See, the difference is that the pugnacious man or woman is like a hammer in search of a nail. That's not Paul. Paul says that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world, but that they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so Paul stands against any pretension that raises itself above the knowledge of God and he takes captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so should we. The church in America is squishy and wimpy because it's led by a bunch of men who are squishy and wimpy. And it's time to get a little ill. It's time to get a little angry. It's time to stand for the truth of the Gospel. Do you not get angry when you think that there are people around you who are dying and going to hell because they've been told that they've sinned too much for the grace of God? That's the lie of legalism. And we should stand against it for the purity of the Gospel and for the fame of His name. God bless you, church. Stand strong. You're dismissed.